Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. I'm Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's episode is going to focus on the movement toward a zero trust strategy in cybersecurity. And joining me today is Tony Scott, the CEO of the Tony Scott Group and a senior advisor for cybersecurity and policy at Squire Patent Boggs, a prominent international law firm uh, who has a broad uh, general practice across a lot of different areas internationally. Until January of 2017, he was serving as the CIO within the Obama administration. I think that was the third one for the U.S. government. And in that capacity, as we all recall, he he created a government-wide response after the OPM hacking incident, including the cybersecurity sprint and implementation plan, which dramatically improved the information system security posture of the federal government. In addition to that, Tony also is a board member of Color Tokens, who's a cybersecurity company that's moving rapidly in the zero trust world. His numerous appearances before Congress, providing CXO level public and private sector insight on matters such as digital workplace transformation, cybersecurity, governance, open data, and workforce diversity are widely recognized. In prior roles, Tony was the CIO at VMware, the CIO at Microsoft, the CIO at the Walt Disney Company, and the CIO at the General Motors Information Systems and Services Company. So I would think that Tony has <laughs> knows a little something about information systems. Tony holds a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of San Francisco in information systems management and a Juris Doctorate degree from the Santa Clara University. So welcome, Tony. I'm glad you could join me today. My pleasure. I just want to make one correction. Uh, CTO at General Motors, not uh, CIO. My boss, Ralph, would have, would be offended by my taking his job. But uh, at any rate, it was a great company to work for. Yeah, perhaps even more impressive from my point of view, but I'm an operational technology guy. So, <laughs> so there you go. So Zero Trust, let's start with negative media coverage and social media chatter over Zero Trust just being a bumper sticker. It seems unclear to many that this is a strategy and not a product. How do you think we got here? Well, I think the origins of this, you know, go back to the beginning of computing. You know, we we struggled in the first 20 years or so with interoperability issues. You know, every computer manufacturer kind of had their own spec. There were no standards for interoperability. And so the industry worked really hard. And, and I got to say, I think did a really good job over you know, the next many years of creating great interoperability standards such that today, you know, anything you buy can interact with and interoperate with practically everything else that you might buy. We don't even think about doing the sort of long test and burn in cycles that we did when I started my career, at least. And all that's great. And again, I think there's, you know, a testimony to the power of standards and so on. But what we didn't do was ask the next question, which is, if I can interoperate, should I? And what are the rules around that? So 
as a result of the lack of that, we have, you know, kind of this open environment where it's a free for all for bad guys who want to, you know, get into a network and, you know, or any kind of an array of information systems and do damage. And, you know, so we've responded to that as an industry by creating, you know, firewall technology and other things, but they just, in my view, don't do the kind of job that needs to be done in this increasingly vast landscape of information systems and devices and and software elements and all of the other things that make up our, you know, the collective ecosystem today. So I think, you know, zero trust as a notion says, you know, let's go back to the beginning and let's only connect to the things that are absolutely necessary within a given productive environment and sort of block everything else. And to me, that makes total sense so that, you know, even if the bad guys get in, you know, they're limited in terms of, you know, where they can go. So, you know, to me, that's just basic common sense and shouldn't be a lot of mystery around it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, sure. You and me both. Uh, and as you know, John Kinderbag's a member of our Zero Trust Council and we're, you know, big Zero Trust fans, though, you know, we don't, we don't see it as uh, the holy grail in terms of, you know, once we get to zero trust, we're going to solve all of our cybersecurity issues, um, as you and I have discussed. Can you explain from your perspective how an incremental approach towards zero trust leads us closer to our desired state? Well, nobody is going to be able to go fully implement a zero trust architecture and implementation overnight. And like anything else, it takes practice. It takes you know, curation and all of those kinds of things. I, I like to compare, you know, the journey is to similar to learning the violin. You know, you don't end up at Carnegie Hall the day after you pick up a violin. You got to practice, practice, practice until maybe you get good enough at it to make it to Carnegie Hall. And all of us, you know, and this is, I think, true of any technology. It's not unique to zero trust, but I recommend to clients, you know, get started, pick an environment, start learning the, you know, various elements of the technology. And then as you develop skill and confidence, and all my clients that have done this do, they develop, you know, skill and and they also develop confidence, uh, then you can expand to larger environments. But to sit and twiddle your thumbs and ignore today's problems with, you know, ransomware and all the other things that are going on, I think is not smart and uh, naive at best, but could be negligent (laughs) in some worst cases. So I say, get started, get on the journey. You know, if you want to lose weight, start exercising. (laughs) It's just one of those common sense kinds of things. Yeah. There's a significant absence of common sense and the way that we, uh, prosecute cybersecurity today, I think. And you and I both come from the, you know, IT operational side of the business, if you will, you know, given that there are four maybe tribes in the cybersecurity space, and one of them is uh, technology-centric. I think that casts a little different light on, on approaches to cybersecurity. Can you sort of share your thoughts on 
how your background influences your perspective? Well, there's a there's a couple of things. I mean, clearly what's driving the conversation today is cybersecurity issues, you know, ransomware hackers, you know, you know, the whole array of folks out there that are trying to do bad things. But I also come at it from a operational standpoint. And I'll just tell you a couple of quick things. So as a CIO, the thing that you hate is that call that comes in the middle of the night when you know something goes down, you know, then there's a scramble, you know, for the next several hours to however long it takes to figure out what the heck happened and why did it happen and you know what can be done ultimately to prevent that thing from happening again. And there's all kinds of, it turns out, operationally bad things that can happen from misconfigurations to what we call fat fingers, you know, people pressing the wrong keys accidentally to uh, confusion of people working in a test environment, inadvertently performing actions in the operational environment without knowing it. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Aside from just a cybersecurity point of view, if you set up a micro-segmented sort of zero-trust environment, you're simultaneously decreasing the chances that some of these accidental things that happen all the time in a, in a daily environment you know, will happen. And a great example is the recent Facebook stuff that happened. These are just operational miscues that happen because of, you know, privileged access and people in some cases doing things that shouldn't happen in a in a robust operational environment. I believe that there's a lot of additional benefits on top of just better cybersecurity. The more you can isolate things into smaller clusters of work, think of it as operational micro segmentation or something, right? It just tends to work better. Let each thing do its own work, but protect it from bad things that are going on in the environment around it is just a great idea. Yeah, sure. And it feels like, I think now it feels like we have data that, empirical data that suggests that, you know, more than 95% of our problems are due to poor hygiene. That goes to patching and is to your earlier point about configuration management as well. It also extends out to uh, the front end on software development where we don't have a lot of rigor in that engineering process. You also, I presume, think that improved hygiene will improve our overall condition. Well, I do. And so I've been responsible for large development teams as well as operations teams. And and you see or some organizations that really do practice, you know, what I would call best practices, but and do a really good job of that. But you also see in most organizations a I'll call it an uneven application of that. So you'll have one team that does a pretty good job, and then you'll have another team somewhere else in the organization that just doesn't have the discipline and so on. And and in my experience, the differences in cost and time and total cost of ownership of these things dramatically is different when you have a team doing the right things versus a team being a little sloppy around those things. 
And it shows up throughout the whole life cycle of the software in terms of patches that need to be made, updates that need to be made. It shows up at the help desk in terms of things that don't work the way they're supposed to or other problems. I mean, you just end up paying for these things over and over and over and over again when they're not done right up at the beginning. And as I like to say to my teams, there's no free lunch there. It pays to do it the right way. And I'll go back to my days at General Motors. The whole auto industry had a problem with quality in the 90s. And you had companies like Toyota just killing us as a U.S. car industry because of these real, you know, quality sorts of issues. Once that reputation is there, it's awfully hard to overcome. And we knew, uh, you know, from a data standpoint that General Motors and all the other U.S. manufacturers caught up to the Japanese in terms of quality in the 2000s, uh, late 2000s kind of time frame. But the public was soured on our products and still haven't caught up, frankly, in terms of public perception, even though the reality is they're just as reliable and the quality is just as good. But you can't convince the public of that. And I think in the software industry, we have the same issue potentially brewing where people are going to start to pay attention as software takes over more and more things. People are going to start to notice, hey, you know, this thing works and is easy to use and is secure and safe. And this other thing over here is really disappointing from a quality, safety, security, privacy standpoint. I'm not going to use it anymore. And uh, I think we're on the verge of that point, And it's time for our beloved profession and industry to sort of wake up and pay attention. Yeah. As a lawyer and in your advisory role with Squire Patent Boggs, hugely influential law firm that deals yeah. in lots of different practice areas in addition to intellectual property, data privacy, and cybersecurity, what are the top legal issues keeping you challenged right now? You mentioned in passing a few minutes ago, negligence and the attendant liability as I extend that to C-suite and board members. It would seem to me that we're just now sort of coming to grips from a legal point of view as to the exercise of the requirement to pay attention to the exercise of fiduciary responsibility among those kind of folks. Yeah, I think, you know, it's an interesting time. For years, the software industry and even those that made hardware have sort of gotten by by saying, we don't have any product liability for anything that, you know, this hardware does, this compute hardware or the software that runs on it. You know, we have no liability. You sign a license agreement, you sign, a, you know, various things that sort of waive all liability. It's only when there's been public pressure to do something that, that the industry has really been held responsible. I was working as a consultant. I was with Pricewaterhouse when the whole Pentium crisis happened. Watched Intel, you know, within a couple of weeks decide to recall all of the Pentium processors when that uh, error was uh, discovered. And it was a very costly endeavor for Intel. But is a great example, I think, of 
a company recognizing the existential threat to them if they just poo-pooed this and didn't you know respond in some way but there was no legal requirement that they do that 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 was something that they decided to do just for pr and you know credibility and marketing purposes uh, and it cost them a ton of money obviously but we've seen precious few other examples of that in the industry when there's been a you know pretty significant bug or defect or or whatever you know this was a early case of a company saying you know hey we screwed up and we're going to fix it i can't think of many other examples frankly i think that that you know of companies that have done that but i think we need more of that in, in order to ultimately have the kind of trust and confidence in our business that we need but i think it's coming i do think that there's mounting pressure for product liability to apply to these things that you know are frankly running our lives you know with digital twins and you know software doing everything you know managing many aspects of our lives our health our safety and so on it's more than just shopping amazon that i think it's inevitable that there'll be some you know product liability sorts of issues that are going to be part of our existence going forward yeah i know people keep screaming for it but congress doesn't seem to be able to understand or be aware at the level of actionable legislation to do anything about it uh, you know just from outside the lines here first of all you didn't have historically that many people in congress and i'm talking about house and senate here who even understood technology at its even elemental uh, levels you do start to have now uh, and i interact with a bunch of them a growing number of people both in the house and in the senate who actually do get it and you know are concerned about some of these issues and so i think it's like everything it just takes time much longer than anybody would like but i do think there is some momentum and some you know growing awareness here that's only good yeah i'm encouraged that's uh, that's good news and you know we we've seen a lot of recent activity of course with the biden administration's executive orders around cybersecurity which is you know it's long overdue it's a good thing no question about it what's your prognosis though having spent many years in the federal at the federal level in the in the heart of the beast if you will in our ability to pull off what needs to be done well i'd say uh, two things one we talk about technical debt a lot in the IT industry and, and you know that's the failure to keep up and keep you know whatever we're doing modernized in a sort of respectable way and i think of cybersecurity debt as well uh, as an element of that and so i'd say objectively i think we're pretty far behind on that there's a lot of cybersecurity and technical debt that we're paying a lot of money to keep a lot of really old sort of bad stuff going and it's risky so i'm i'm very um let's say concerned about that but having said that in recent years because of the growing awareness and the stakes i think we're starting to make good progress and I, and i'll just give you a couple of small examples 
one of the things that we started at the end of the Obama administration was the requirement that every big federal agency risk rate its critical applications along three dimensions. One was cybersecurity risk. One was cost, you know, or the, is this critical system overly costly or cost burdensome? And then the third dimension was uh, its suitability for business purpose. And so every year when it comes to budget time, agencies have to look at their critical systems, rate them on those three dimensions, and then define what it would take from a cost and resource perspective to address those issues. And the point of doing that was to make sure that there was explicit transparency in terms of the budget process, meaning Congress in particular, of the size of the problem, the nature of the problem, and what it was going to take to fix it. And to force Congress in particular to say, no, we see the problem, we know how big it is, we know how dangerous it is, but we're deliberately deciding not to do anything about it. Or, you know, hopefully, on the other hand, say, oh, that's a problem. Maybe we better allocate some money or some resources to, to go fix that. And the result of that effort now going on its fifth year has been kind of what I talked about before, a growing awareness in Congress in terms of the set of problems that we're facing and better funding for fixing those things. So our technology modernization fund, as an example, is well over a billion dollars now that agencies can use to apply to for funding to you know, get some things fixed. And while far too short of the total amount of money needed, which is in the tens of billions of dollars, it's better than the zero that was there you know, five years ago. And I'm hopeful that that fund will continue to get you know, support in, in Congress, just as one example. Secondly, the policy, you know, you've seen the Biden administration and Gartner and Forrester and some of the other analyst companies all come out and support zero trust as a uh, principle and as a architecture to support uh, going forward. And that's unusual in my book. I don't think I've seen any consensus on any topic, any technical topic like that in my lifetime where simultaneously you have all the analyst firms, governments say, you know, pay attention to this particular thing. It's just unusual, but I think it says something about how important this really is. So I'd, I'd make those two points and say, I'm optimistic that we can make progress. We won't solve the problem overnight for sure, but uh, we can begin to make some progress. Yeah. I'm optimistic as well, because you're right, I have not seen this happen ever before. The extension to this needs to be some actionable items that I've yet to see. But to your point, we're, uh, you know, it's, it's, very, it's a very positive move, I think. As we're closing in on the half hour here, I wanted to ask you a final question. You know, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, what do we have to do and how are we going to win this war against this current sort of syndication of adversaries in cyberspace? Well, I think it represents a broader challenge that, frankly, I don't have the complete answer to, or I probably wouldn't be sitting here if I, if I thought I did. But it is, 
isolation, digital isolation in all kinds of different ways. And the ability of people, governments, institutions, whatever, to, you know, decide that they're going to go a different way and, and either do something restrictive or harmful or maybe even dangerous to the rest of the world that they exist in. And you see it in all kinds of different ways showing up, you know, the political separation that we have now is a, one example of this. But so I don't know the complete answer, uh, to be honest. I think that, you know, the best solution I know of is just to foster, you know, global dialogue in some of these important topics. When I was at Microsoft, I was the Microsoft senior executive for the city of Beijing and a couple of big PetroChina and some of the other uh, big government-run institutions in, in China. And I'd show up a couple times a year and, you know, for the first year or two, we get polite dialogue, but non-meaningful discussion. And then I noticed in about the third or fourth year, we actually started having constructive conversation. And my so my advice is we got to play for the long haul. We've got to engage in conversation and Hopefully that turns into dialogue and then meaningful, you know, action over some long period of time. And I think the mistake that we make sometimes is we always play the short game and try to look for today's win or, you know, the, the immediate victory. And that doesn't play well on the world stage. It's, in my view, more about, you know, long-term relationships and forging alliances and seeing different points of view and, and so on. And I don't say that to be Pollyannish. I think it's comes from practical experience dealing with, you know, different cultures and different, you know, viewpoints around the world. So th that would be my solve is, you know, play for the long game and keep your eye on the short game, but play for the long one. I agree. The sanction response clearly isn't working here. <laughs> Every time you turn around, you sanction Russia, you sanction China, you get a big fat cyber attack in return. And so yeah. it's, it's kind of a demonstration that, well, okay, fine, throw sanctions at us. Let me demonstrate our cybersecurity superiority to you with while we blow up your, uh, you know, your gas delivery network on the Northeast. So, hey, we're, you know, you and I could talk for hours here. Uh, we are out of time. I do want to thank Tony Scott for taking time out of his, I'm sure, crazy schedule. Join me in what was, uh, I think, an interesting exchange, and we'll do more of this going forward. So thank you, Tony, for taking the time. My pleasure. Good to speak with you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us in another one of Cyber Theory's unplugged reviews of the complex and intriguing world of cybersecurity, technology, and our new digital reality. And until next time, I'm Steve King, your host, signing out. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory, or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.